0: Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 19th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today I'll be providing a very basic introduction to essential Asian history and my plans for next season. time for a making history segment we are less than four weeks away from the georgia election and early voting begins next monday december 14th mcconnell and the spineless wonders that make up the gop have made it clear they don't care about our democratic process or human beings in general the only way we can save ourselves from them is by electing john ossoff and reverend Raphael warnock to the senate if you're in georgia please make a voting plan are you registered if you're voting by mail have you requested your ballot If you're voting in person, where are your polling locations? Do you need a ride or do you want a buddy for safety reasons? Remember, COVID-19 cases are rising astronomically, so wear a mask, bring hand sanitizer, and practice social distancing. If you want to do more to help, you can volunteer with the candidates' campaigns, as well as with Fairfights, Stacey Abrams' voting right organization. We'll provide links in the description. If you're not in Georgia, both candidates have phone banks reserved specifically for out-of-state volunteers, and Indivisible has partnered with postcards to swing states and vote forward to send out postcards and letters to Georgia voters. You can also register for Indivisible's National Day of Action call for Georgia on January 4th at 5 p.m., right before the election. If you're out-of-state, please listen to Georgia organizers on the best ways we can help. We must trust our Georgia brethren. They know a hell of a lot more about winning votes in their state than we do. Now, on to Central Asia. We've spent most of 2020 talking about the Irish War of Independence, my first love as a researcher, but for 2021, we're going to be talking about a conflict on the other side of the world, the Central Asian Civil Wars, during the Russian Civil War. Don't worry, we'll return to Ireland to discuss the Irish Civil War at some point, but for Season 2, we're going to discuss everything Central Asia. This is going to be a huge undertaking because Central Asia has an ancient and complicated history that is little understood in the West. But that's also what makes me really excited about our upcoming episodes. To give you a taste of some of the things we'll be discussing, we'll be talking about a series of quote-unquote post-colonial republics emerging during several regional civil wars. So those are the Central Asian civil wars that we'll be focused on, wrapped within the context of a larger civil war, the Russian civil war plus all the side conflicts like the one of Poland and Ukraine, etc., which has a domino effect on the Russian civil war. And then that affects the central Asian civil wars. Then add on top of that, this ongoing debate slash revolution within Islamic education and identity, and then how they cope with the loss of a free Islamic empire, the Ottoman empire and the loss of Persia and eventually Bukhara and Kiva Emirates combined with the Afghanistan war where Afghanistan wins its independence from Britain, the freedom movements developing in India. And finally, we have to discuss the introduction of Bolshevism into a region that isn't very interested in Bolshevism, but the elites are beholden to Bolshevik power, and the peasants are in open revolt. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we'll be discussing during these episodes. Out of these complicated conflicts, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan are born. And I don't know if you can tell this about me yet, but I love the story of states developing during asymmetrical conflicts. So that's why I'm really excited to talk about this. I will pause to say, If you want a preview of the things we'll be discussing, check out The Great War on YouTube. They recently published an episode on the Central Asian Civil Wars during the Russian Civil War, which I helped research for and write. And you can also check out my interview with them, where we talk about the things we couldn't cover in the episode. For the purpose of this podcast, we'll consider Central Asia to mean the five modern states. So Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. We will be discussing Afghanistan and the... Xinjiang province, but as a separate entity. I did this for a couple of reasons, uh, to simplify, to simplify an already complicated subject, Afghanistan was taught between Britain and Russia, which means it doesn't really fit nicely within the Russo Central Asian perspective we'll be adopting during the next couple of episodes. And I want some more time to research conflicts in Afghanistan and Xinjiang, particularly about this period just so I feel a little bit more comfortable talking about it. And we'll have to reserve Mongolia and Tibet and Siberia, which is sometimes considered part of Central Asia, depending for a different season altogether. Given how complicated this undertaking is going to be, I thought I'd start with this introductory episode and very, very briefly discuss Central Asia's law and history and the different peoples and empires who have left an impression on the region. In her book, Russia and Central Asia, Coexistence, Conquest, and Convergence, Soshana Keller said that if you look at a map, Central Asia is at the center of everything, but is itself nowhere. I think that's a pretty useful way of thinking about this region. It's surrounded by Russia, China, Iran, and India, and so it's easy to overlook, I think especially during modern times, um, but it was also the connecting point for those empires. It was the center of the Silk Road. It's the cent- It was the center of Islamic intellectual and religious life um, in a lot of ways. And it's known great conquerors such as Chinggis Khan and Timur. And it's been part of a lot of ancient empires that I think people don't realize. When thinking about Central Asia, I've seen their history divided into six different time blocks, And I think it's helpful to think of it this way. You have the pre-Islamic period, which is about the 7th to 10th century. You have the Arab period, which starts in about the 8th century. Then you have the Mongols, which is about 1200. So you have, then you have the Timurids, which is 1300s. And then you have this giant Uzbek migration, which happens in about the 1500s that really changes the region. And then you have the Russian-British-Chinese-Great Dame period, which is late 1800s into 1900s, which then you get into World War One, and that's what we'll be talking about. So starting with the pre-Islamic age... Uh, Central Asia was home to mostly nomadic Iranian steppe peoples. When you read about this period, you'll notice that historians love to create a deep divide between nomadic peoples and settled people or sed- sedentary people. But in Central Asia, it seems almost impossible to do that because you would have nomads who would settle for a period and then they'd migrate again. Or they would—you know, you'd have farmers who would be farmers until it was no longer profitable and then they'd become nomadic. Um, and this is true, I think throughout most of Central Asian history up until about 1920s when the Bolsheviks come. And we'll talk about that later. Um, Like I said, at the time, the region's mostly Iranian nomads, but you do have a growing Chinese and Tibetan presence as well. That changes in the 8th century when the Arabs invade, Um, and they defeat the Chinese army at the Battle of Taraz in 751, and this ends the Chinese presence in Central Asia for about a millennium, and it enfolds Central Asia into the Abbasid Empire. When the Arabs invaded, they brought Islam with them, and they highly encouraged conversions. Um, And this is why, you know, there's a pre-Islamic period, and this is the beginning of the Islamic period. However, they leave political power to local forces, and sometimes those forces were vetted by the rulers in Baghdad. But oftentimes, you know, it was whoever could keep order. And out of this comes the Samanids dynasty. They grow prominence pretty quickly, and they basically become an autonomous power within the region. During the Samanid reign, uh, Bukhara becomes a center of Muslim learning and home to many famous Islamist, Islamic scholars such as Avicina and Abu Rahan Runi. At the same time, there's a massive migration of Turkic peoples into Central Asia, creating multiple dynasties such as the Karat Hanids, the first Turkic Muslim dynasty in Central Asia, the Ghaznavids, the dynasty, cent- the dynasty centered in Ghazna, which is modern-day Afghanistan, which is actually founded by a Samanid military commander, and then the Soljukids, a Turkic dynasty that would rule over much of Western Asia during the 11th and 12th century. The Samanids would fight with met all, of these empi- all of these dynasties, but they'd also recruit Turks into their armies because they were considered to be superior fighters, and this is what enables them to rise to power and take over the region by the end of the 10th century. And many do convert to Islam, the most famous conversion being of the Karak, Karakhanid ruler, Satik, the three Turkic dynasties divide the samanid empire amongst themselves with the, the soldiers taking control by the late 1080s and they create a new dynasty in chorism eventually the church would be worked into the muslim narrative by making them the descendants of yathif also known as Japheth, one of noah's three sons by the 1200 central asia is facing a new foe Chinggis khan and the mongols while chingis's main foe was china he quickly realized that central asia was too powerful to be left alone so in 1219 and also the central asian empire's kind of poked him as well um so in 1219 he leads an invasion and eventually he conquers the region when he dies he divides his territory amongst his sons with shadatai his second oldest son receiving the steppe lands to the north of sedentary central asia Chadatay's son would expand the reach to most of Transoxiana, which is most of modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, southern Kyrgyzstan, and southwest Kazakhstan. Mongol rule would see Islam spread throughout Central Asia, and you'd also see the beginning of the rise of the Sufis, um, who would remain powerful after the Mongols were long gone. The Mongol Empire shattered after three generations, and the remaining fragments formed their own independent dynasties. Um, within Central Asia, they would build their khanates around key cities such as Bukhara, Kiva, and Khokhan. One such powerful Turkic lord was Timur. Timur's family seems to have taken part in the Mongols' invasion of Central Asia and solidified their power in the city Kish, south of Samarkand. By 1370, Timur becomes the most powerful man in Central Asia, but since rulers required Chinggisid lineage, he has to employ puppets to um, exercise his power. He does marry into the Mongol royal family, and then he establishes Samarkand as his capital. And while Timur will always be known for his conquests and military campaigns, Central Asia will remember, them, will remember the Timurids, basically, for the increased trade, the beautification of Samarkand, the explosion of architecture, and the arts. When Timur dies, his dynasty ruled Central Asia, Afghanistan, and Persia. Um, his descendants, known as the Timurids, become dedicated patrons of the arts and sciences, this period is time known as the Timurid rena- Renaissance. There's this profound rise of the Sufis, and they establish a model of governance that inspires governments in Uzbek, Central Asia, which we'll talk about in like a few minutes, Mughal India, Safavid, Iran, and the Ottoman Empire. The Timurid state would last until the 16th century, when a new race of people migrated to Central Asia, um, and they are known as the Uzbeks. The Uzbek migration, which is one of these last great nomadic migrations um, that we see in the area, occurs in the 1500s, and it creates these three most famous Khanates, Kiva, Bukhara, and Khotan. Kiva was created, um, the Uzbek family, the Arab Shanids, overthrew the Tarazim Empire. Um, they moved the capital to Kiva in the 1500s and established control over what is what is modern Turkmenistan. Kiva would flourish until the 1540 and 1593 Bukharan invasions. They served as a Bukharan vassal state until the Nadir Shah invasion in the 1700s. They regained their independence under the Khandrak dynasty in 1804, but would struggle with Turkmen rebellions from 1855 to 67, um, when two to two to three Khans were killed during the rebellion. The Bukharan Khanate was created when a group of Uzbeks led by Muhammad Shibani Khan, pushed Zahir ad din Muhammad Babur out of his family's home in Samarkand and into Afghanistan, where he would invade India and create the Mughal Empire. Uh, the Shibani Khanate would rule from about 1500 to 1599 before being taken over from the inside out by the Tokay Timurids from 1599 to 1747-ish. The Shibanis utilized the the system of government which relies on the senior member of the family being the ruler, but he's consider- he's known as like the greatest among equals, and he's supposed to share his power with the rest of the family members, which sounds really good in theory, but doesn't always work out. Bukhara became the Khanate's capital, but they also ruled important cities such as Kashtan, Samarkand, and Bakh. The Uzbeks were Sunni Muslims, which put them in conflict with the Shia Muslims in the Safavid dynasty in Persia. Um, and they would often struggle over the region of Khorasan. Sabani Khan himself would die in battle against the Safavids, which led to, which led to civil war before his son took over, and then his son would die, and then you'd have another civil war, and their system of government isn't very stable. Combined with this instability, they also had to contend with conflicts with the Kazakh warriors, the Safavids, and their neighbor Khanates, such as Kiva. In 1681, the Kivans invaded the Bukharan territory, took Bukhar itself, and forced the Khan to step down. His brother was placed on the throne, but then he struggled controlling rebellious Amirs who were slowly consolidating power into their hands. They assassinated a couple of Khans, worsening, worsening internal crises while the region suffered several invasions from neighbors, such as the Junder-Mongol invasion in 1723. This invasion sparks what is known as the Barefoot Flight, which is a mass migration of Kazakh people from the steppes into the Bukharan territory. This is one of those great migrations that still, I think, lives today in, in Kazakh um, minds and, and identity. And Things were then made worse in 1736 when the Shabanids' old enemies, the Safavids, were defeated in Persia and replaced by Nadir Shah. While invading India, Nadir Shah forced Hiva and Bukhara to submit to his authority, but then he died in 1747. And when he died, the man that he placed in Bukhara to help keep order, Muhammad Rahim Bey, killed the last, or Shibanid Khan, and took control himself, ending the, ending the shibanid Tokay timurid dynasty and placing his own. And then we have the Kocan Khanate, which was a creation of the Shibanid dynasty and originated in the Ferdana Valley. The ruler Nabuta Bey negotiated trade deals with the Qin dynasty in China and created a, di- a dynamic system of government that his sons Alim and Umar would take advantage of, and they'd create this golden age for Kocan the Khotan Khanate established their legitimacy by modeling their government and society on Timurid society and even try to trace their lineage to the Timur family. While they were they were more centralized than the Bukharan Khanate they're not like a modern central state and they suffer from similar weaknesses as the Bukharan Khanate. It works if you can control your family members and you know your different interest groups the system breaks down when you no longer have control over those system groups or those uh, interest groups or they think that they can get what they want from other people. While internal divisions hurt Khanate rule, it was the Russians and the Chinese who tolled the death bells. It started the Chinese invasion of Xinjiang in 1758, which shot Central Asian Muslims, because now a large part of Muslim Central Asia was ruled by non-Muslims. The Khotan Khan Khanate responded by agreeing to be subordinate to the Qing dynasty, but no one seemed to define what that meant, and that made their relationship rocky from the start. And this happens a lot with the different Khanates and the different powers in China and Russia, and some Khanates would even like make agreements with both to try and get you know, what they could from both empires. The Russians made several excursions into Central Asia, and they were eyeing the Kazakh and Kyrgyz steppes at this point, and they're reaching out to various Khanates for alliances and vassalages. The Central Asians at first saw more opportunity than danger, I think. Um, they were more concerned about internal rivalry and not so much external. They increased trade with China and Russia and thought they could play their neighbors against their rival conics. In 1715, Kiva considered allying with Russia to defeat their neighboring Kirkman tribes, but then Kiva executed the diplomats Russia sent. So then Russia estabil- establishes a militarized border known as the Orenberg Line by the mid-18th century. The Russian and Chinese invasions, combined with the Persian invasion in the 1700s, left Central Asia off kilter, and many people started turning to the Sufis and the Lama for guidance. The Russian expanse was inspired by need for land and resources as much as it was inspired by British interference. And this is when we start getting to the conflict that is sometimes known as the Great da- Great Game. Um, the Great Game took place in Central Asia during the draft of Central Asians between two colonial powers. The Khanates tried to navigate the difficult times as best they could, but could not prevent Russia from taking all of Turkestan, which is just most of modern-day Central Asia, by 1895, leaving the emirates of Kiva and Bukhara as loosely independent entities whose loyalty was to Russia. And I said emirates, not Khanates, and we'll get into that in the next episode. So that's it for now. In terms of next few episodes, we're going to dedicate one episode to Russian colonialism and the great game. So we will talk more about how Russia took Central Asia. And maybe an episode dedicated to Chinese colonialism. I'm not quite sure yet. And then we'll talk about the evolution of Islamic education and identity, focusing on at least two movements, the Jadids, and, which are Uzbek and Tajik intellectuals, and then the Alish Orda, which are Kazakh and Kyrgyz intellectuals. That may dovetail into a conversation about the Young Turk revolt, but I haven't decided yet. I don't want to get too far from Central Asia. Then we'll discuss World War One in Central Asia, including the 1916 revolt, and a very, very brief episode on the Russian Revolution. We will return to that conflict at a later date uh, before diving deep into the Central Asian civil wars. So there's going to be a lot to talk about, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. If, if there are related topics or events or peoples you think I should talk about, or you have pronunciation tips, that'd be really helpful. Uh, please reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or on my blog. Feel free to recommend sources. Um, I'm not going to be able to cover everything, but I'd love to cover as much as possible and pronounce it as accurately as I can. Thank you for joining us. You can find our full catalog on our website, www.samswarroom.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Please consider contributing, contributing to our Kofi and follow us on Twitter at warfare and Instagram, which is just the art of asymmetrical warfare. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.